We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. And welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're continuing our journey into Munich. The Edge of War, the 2021 Netflix World War II film. And we are back with a Spy Master interview. Cam, who are we talking to? We are talking to the writer of the film, Ben Power. Yes, it's a really fascinating chat with Ben. Very insightful. And uh, we hope you enjoy. So without further ado, Cam roll the interview and joining us now on the show it is the screenwriter of this week's film munich the edge of war and of course a playwright and the associate director of the national theater it is mr ben power how are you doing today sir yeah i'm good thanks thanks for having me um so with these interviews what we like to do is is try and have people on the show who have been involved in the films that we talk about from writers to directors to actors and just sort of help contextualize the creation of the film and sort of go through the process that you, where you were involved. But I think before we do that, the question I always like to sort of ask is how did you get into, you know, obviously you don't just do screenwriting, you do a lot of things, but I suppose you're working theater. How did it all start for you? Yeah, I was, um, I came from a theater background. So I was writing plays and producing plays written by other people at different theaters for a long time before I did any screen work at all. And I was always kind of, I mean, I love film and I was sort of, you know, I was a film fan before I was a, a theatre fan, but I'd ended up doing stage work. And then I had wanted to find a way to write for film and make films. And I, um, I got the job adapting some Shakespeare plays for the BBC in uh, 2012. There was uh, like a season during the uh, around the time of the Olympics and the Cultural Olympiad, they did a season of uh, big Shakespeare history plays on the BBC. And I adapted them, which was a great first job for me because they were plays that I knew really well from the theatre. And the question of how to make those plays work as films was really like an interesting technical challenge and taught me a lot about storytelling on screen and the differences between the two medium and I loved it and I, you know, I was really excited by the possibilities of telling stories on, on film. So since then I've done a lot more and now nearly all of my time is taken up writing uh, films and uh, TV and thinking about how to, you know, just make the most in storytelling terms for an audience of, you know, the amazing possibility of this art form. Um, and I love it. And this is the, uh, the Hollow Crown. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. The Hollow Crown. Was, 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 yeah, with, with Jeremy Irons, with a nice little connection to this week's film. Jeremy, exactly. That was when I that was when I first met. Um, that was when I first met Jeremy. I'm just trying to think. I don't think anyone else in Munich was involved, but it was like that. The cast of that was like a, a kind of who's who of of people working in in British theatre and film at that time. So you know, we did Henry V with Tom Hiddleston and. Ben Whishaw was Richard II. And, you know, they're really great movies. And a lot of people 
you know, there were a lot of first time uh, film directors coming from theatre to work on them. And actually, uh, Sam Mendes, who I then worked with on um, this play, the Lehman trilogy that we've just done, uh, was the executive producer and kind of ran the whole thing. So it was all it was Sam's brainchild, really. And yeah, and that was where I first met Jeremy. Um, and I feel like I've said this before, I feel like even then, in like, you know, 10 years ago, and before Robert had published, Robert Harris had published the book at Munich, I think Jeremy was talking about Chamberlain and thinking about Neville Chamberlain as somebody he was really interested in and interested in one day playing. Well, I, I believe also that uh, congratulations are in order because I just read yesterday that uh, the Layman trilogy is the is it the most Tony nominated play of the year. Yeah, it's a lot of nominations. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's really it's, uh, fantastic. That's terrific, great. though. So well done. Well, it's, it's just it's great when you know these things are such uh, collaborative efforts, particularly like a play like that. It's every every element of from the design to the music to the video design to the performances is working together so you know when you get a like a recognition for a lot of those different departments it's really uh, it's really great yeah fantastic and i'm really curious you know you say you were really into film early on what were the movies that first touched you the ones that made you actually interested in eventually writing for film i mean i i loved i mean this is this is going to sound like an easy answer in the context of, of, of your show, but I love Bond from like the the first, it's the first thing I can remember watching, uh, like the Roger Moore Bonds and uh, watching them with my dad on like Sunday on ITV and, you know, hating the ad breaks in Man with the Golden Gun or uh, Live and Let Die. Like those films are so um, embedded and, and actually, you know, when, um, when, uh, Sam was making um, Spectre and we were taught, you know, and they had a, a lot of, they had a very kind of complex script process for that film, as you might might know. I was, we were working on the play at that time on the Trilogy. And so I was like talking to him a lot about Spectre and it's just like, I was reminded then that Bond and those movies, because like I love big movies. I've always loved like big action movies, but I guess, you try and find things with um with like a kind of intelligence behind them and i always thought and i still think and you know the no time to die is the proof of this that the ability of the bond franchise to like maintain um a kind of intelligence and a coherence even in spite of all the all the nonsense and all the difficulties of making those kind of films and films of that scale nowadays um, it's just incredibly, incredibly impressive, and um, yeah, and so the more the more I know about the the industry, the more impressive I think what Barbara and Michael do with the Bond the Bond um, brand and legacy is. But but those were the films that I I was into really early and for a long time. It's a it's an interesting question. We might come back to I think actually later on. Yeah. The yeah. Bonds. Okay. Um, I, I I was just actually just checking something up because I wasn't sure if I read this correctly, but I went back to look at The Hollow Crown and I realized that Dominic Cook had directed three of the episodes. Yeah. He's already been on the show before. So we've had you both now. So, yeah, I mean, no, I yeah. know. He told, I saw, I actually saw him about three days ago and I said I was doing this and he told me that he had already met, met with you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, exactly. So, but the those episodes, because we wrote the scripts together for those three parts of, the wars of the roses and then dominic directed them and that was his first film directing um mm. 
and you know we were we were kind of learning together and we had you know a wonderful time and he were you know benedict was benedict cumberbatch was richard the third in those films and you know they they made the career yeah um well i think then let's start to chart the course into munich We've got this underlying love of spy films here, which we found, which I, is great, and I want to explore later. But how did that the concept first come to you about adapting the book of Munich? Um, so I was approached. I knew of the book, but I hadn't read it. I'd read other Robert Harris books. And then I was talking to a guy called David Cossey, who um, used to run Film 4 and is now a producer at Netflix. And um, his one of his jobs at Netflix has been the expansion of um, material, European material, not in the English language. So I think I think it's okay to say this. I think there is a sense that, and you know, I think this has been borne out by events since we made our film. Um, there is a there is a limit to the scale of the English language audience that Netflix can attract. But at this time, this was like three years ago, I guess, when we were having this conversation. Uh, maybe four years ago, um, there wasn't much that they were making in German or French or Spanish. And um, David was charged with coming in and building a slate of projects that were either in not in the English language or or in more than one language, and um, to to find stuff that could be um, that could attract audiences to Netflix in Spain and France and Germany and Italy and beyond. Um, and since then, of course, like shows like um, Money Heist and Lupin and, you know, there's a whole range of um, of stuff has just um, like Call My Agent, you know, very, very successful stuff that sort of proved what I always thought instinctively. And I think lots of people did that um, if the if the material is the right kind of material, um, stuff that is made in one language can easily translate into another and you know there was a lot of conversation at the beginning of munich about whether we were really gonna have the german speaking in german and subtitled and subtitle the english scenes for the german audiences and one of the one of the successes of the film i think is that no one ever talks about that like it's just accepted that everyone's talking in their own language and that you get interesting things where people have to choose which language they're talking in like when hugh and paul are a meeting they have a they could talk in, in two different ways and the, the decision is a conscious one. Um, so we, so David was looking for material which would enable him to build an audience in those two, both in non-English language and in the English language. And so he had found Munich, this book that takes place in Germany and Britain with German protagonists and British protagonists as a potential project that could, that could bridge those two, those two audiences and, and have a collaboration between British artists or English language artists and German artists, um, which, by the way, is like the best thing about the film in, term, in, in terms of my experience of it was having this great close working relationship with Christian Troco and with the German actors and all of Christian's team. It was just fantastic. Um, and yeah, so he gave me the book and asked me if I would think about adapting it. And I read it and, you know, really loved it. And we, we started there. Did you have any contact with the author, uh, Robert Harris? So I met him. He was he was great because, you know, he's very experienced in adapting, you know, his books being adapted to screen. He's written the screenplays of several of those adaptations himself. Um, so he was really uh, available and answered lots of questions, very patient, um, but also uh, hand, hands off and let us really make the decisions we wanted to make. And then came in and gave very clear 
steers on where he thought it was working and not particularly in the film was very very long at the beginning of the edit it came down a lot through the post-production process and that was that was interesting and complicated and he was really uh really useful actually in terms of intervening at crucial moments and pushing it towards the the shape of the film that exists now um and you know he's he's very 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 you know experienced academic you know he knows more about chamberlain and this moment than than i will ever know and actually all of that research and all of that work is in the book it was an interesting thing is that i didn't need to spend very much time away learning myself uh lots of additional re you know because i love research that's my, one of my favorite bits of the of the job but actually it's all there in the book and in the the notes that he made around the book it's kind of it's all available and it's incredibly even though elements of it are fictionalized obviously it's an incredibly i think accurate the detail of of what is being portrayed is is really accurate even though you know i know some people have different opinions about the robert's take on this moment and on chamberlain's behavior it's it's definitely rooted in historical facts well, I, I suppose then you're you've been given this book to adapt. You you like what you've read. You're you're starting the process of turning it into a, a screenplay. At, at that stage, are you looking at any other films that as sort of inspiration you're drawing from? Because this is you know quite the the spy thriller. This is like yeah. a car ray that sort of stuff. It's going down that vein, but also historical at the same time and sort of like a biopic in its own way. W was there anything you were drawing from? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things. I mean, I love. I love Le Carre and that, um, you know, thinking about that kind of, I think one of the things that the film is about is about, you know, moral courage versus moral ambivalence and the, what heroism means in these different contexts. And, you know, Paul's idea of, Paul Hartman's idea of heroism is quite different from Hugh Leggett's sort of quieter idea of, of what are your responsibilities in these moments. And so, you know, there's lots of um, of interesting, particularly um, in thinking about German and British relationships, films like, you know, I guess films like Lives of Others or, um, I mean, Le Carre is the master of that kind of moral grey area, isn't he? Like Spy Who Came In From The Cold and those those kind of, um, of films, I think, are really good at charting the the kind of murkiness. Nothing is easy, you know millions of people are going to die in the in the years immediately after these moments and the choices there are no easy choices which i think is what the the film is about but what is the individual responsibility in those moments so you know there's films like um bridge of spies i think is a great um an interesting film about those kind of questions but um but particularly particularly the kind of uh the ones that were looking at germany and at berlin and that the you know those that kind of atmosphere of um, Weimar into into Nazi Berlin and quite how that was going to manifest in our story were the kind of things I was thinking about. Now, when you're adapting a book like this, what were the, the most challenging um, elements to adapt, and how did you you know solve those problems? And the hardest thing is that you know he's written a, a three hundred and something page book which is really tightly constructed not just in terms of plot but in terms of um sort of the detail and the building up of historical detail and so 
you know, the necessity of abbreviating and essentializing that and cutting it and, and finding a new a shape for it, particularly finding a shape which felt, you know, the, the one thing we were kind of clear about was that we didn't want to just make an accurate but potentially dry historical drama. Like we wanted to maintain and activate and even potentially heighten the thriller elements of the book and really try and create something that had um, a sense of propulsion, which is really hard when everyone knows the end, right? Like Paul Hartman is not going to shoot Adolf Hitler in the last, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, maybe maybe when Tarantino does his like alternative history endings of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Inglorious Bastards, maybe he he now has changed the rules so that maybe, maybe Paul could shoot Hitler in that scene, but he's, I know he's not going to, and we all know that Chamberlain's going to resign and Churchill's going to come in and Britain's going to go to war and, you know, there's going to be six years of atrocity and horror ahead. But trying to maintain the thriller elements of the book, which Robert does brilliantly. You know, Robert does write books which are, they're not, they're not genre thrillers in the Le Carre mold necessarily, but they, they do enough to keep his readers turning the page. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to keep that and heighten that that necessitates sometimes a slightly different shape than the book. And then you get into the difficulty of he's built his house of cards really precisely. So when you take something out, when you say, okay, we're going to merge these two characters, um, these two English diplomats, uh, civil servants behind the scenes are going to get merged into one, or we're going to remove a scene where the generals, the, the heads of the air force and the army come in and brief Chamberlain at length about, Britain's lack of preparedness for war, or we're going to, you know, change the the structure of the way some information about Paul and Hugh's relationship is revealed to the audience. You make a decision, and then um, two drafts later or two months later, you discover why Robert structured it in the way he did, and quite what uh, um, what how very good he is at structuring story, um, and then you have to go back and find a fix and a way of doing it in your new thing, but. But, I mean, with adaptation, always it's about, I think, trying to find the, like, the the truth of the material, which is not, the, of the source material, which is not necessarily the letter of the source material, right? Sometimes you have to go quite a long way away in order to, to get to the heart of what something's really about. Um, and in the case of Munich, really, there were some things that we really wanted to, like, push our thumb on, particularly in terms of, that sense, you know, Christian always talked about making a film that felt relevant today. And actually, I mean, of course, what happened is that the film came out and then suddenly Europe and the West found itself in a position with Russia where a lot of the same questions about appeasement or, I mean, it's quite hard to remember now, but like before the invasion of the of Ukraine, like the question about how far to go in giving Putin what he wanted. It's exactly the same questions. And people were like talking, you know, people in um, MPs were talking about Munich, the, about the Munich conference in Parliament in the weeks leading up to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine this year. Um, so it became a very relevant film in a way that I don't think we, we obviously we couldn't have predicted. But thinking about relevance, thinking about the question of what what is the responsibility of every single one of us in a moment of historical crisis? And how do you, you know, if you were alone in a room with 
somebody who you think of as a dangerous leader who's doing damage to things, what would you do? What could you do? Could you shoot whoever, you know, insert the name of the of the despotic populist leader of your choice? But like, what would what would you do? And that's the question that Hugh and Paul and to an extent Chamberlain um, are wrestling and Helen Winter are, are wrestling with in this film. Like what what can any single person do? And how do you live with the consequences of your decisions? Um, so trying to trying to really articulate that in a more um, just in a clearer way, maybe than the book does or the book needs to, was part of the job. It's, it's interesting because we uh, recorded our review yesterday uh, in uh, tape recording, and and we spoke about that sort of parallels to now quite scary in that sense yes. that how yeah. how uh, on the mark this was and you know going back to the the, the paul von hartmann in front of hitler with the gun we can say spoilers mm. here it's, it's not a problem okay um, yeah people should have listened to it by this point um <laughs> it, it's, it's fascinating because what would you do in that situation a lot of people would just go oh yeah i just shoot him but that's right. not necessarily true because you have to live your life after that and i think that's you know it's a it's a kind of issue i think with representation of some of this kind of stuff on film that people are always shooting each other so easily and the question of you know the cost of that's what you know le carry writes this so brilliantly doesn't he that what the cost is of pulling a trigger or mm. betraying somebody but particularly violence i think um and i just i do believe that there are some people who in in any context, and maybe maybe I'm one of them, in any context would not be able to shoot somebody, even faced with somebody like that. Um, and that's the you know that is the that's the argument that that Hugh is making in the film. It's like that we can't. If you shoot him, who are you? Like we mm. have to negotiate, we have to deal, we have to use all of the levers and tools of diplomacy. Um, otherwise, we are we're being you know he's moving us into his field of combat rather than ours, which is civilization, um, and that's the that's the challenge, and that's the kind of impossible challenge that Chamberlain and Hugh and Paul are dealing with in this moment. It's like you're always going to fail if you're <laughs> you know at that really, and it's mm -hmm. about mitigating the failure, um, and and that's kind of bruising but but true yeah i i would say uh, we mentioned this in the review and credit to your writing in the sense because i did i hadn't read the book i still haven't read the book i'm not a, a student of history particularly although i know a little about uh, you know, chamberlain and such from school but i and i obviously know what what happened to hitler but in that moment i wasn't sure if your story was going to go the Tarantino route, as you as you said, yeah. you know, uh, once upon a time in Hollywood or something like that, with glorious bastards, you know, and I thought well, maybe that's what's going to happen. So you, you've built that tension to that point, and, and I think that's credit to you. Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. I mean, that's, yeah, that's good. I was just going to say, in terms of the collaborative process when you're putting the script together. Now I know, and we've we've spoken to quite a few screenwriters on the show, and and they come in at different points of the process of making a film. Some people have it from the beginning. Some people come in, save it at the last minute. It sounds yeah. like you had this was your script to start off with. Yeah. Was the director there from the start as well, and was it a collaborative process, or was it really just you just cranking it out? No, I had started, and then Christian Schwoko, the director, 
was attached during the process of me finishing my first draft. So then he he and I didn't meet until there was a draft. So that first um, that first sense of taking the book apart and putting the beginnings of a film together, I did on my own, and then it changed beyond recognition over the uh, nearly year of of us developing it um, together. And that was, you know, like I say, that was one of my favorite things about the whole process is particularly because, you know, there's a sense, and I think this is in the book, and certainly I brought it to the book. um, You know, the British perspective on this is particular and narrow, and the Western perspective is particular and narrow, and the Western sense of what heroism was in 1939 and a sense of what victory looked like and who who the goodies and the baddies were at this moment. And what was fantastic is that Christian came in as somebody who's, you know, lived like all uh, Germans of his generation. He's lived his life defined by being the generation that came after the generation, you know, pe- people who had, had been there and, and lived through the Second World War in Germany. And, you know, saturated with representations of Hitler and conversations about the behavior of the German people at this time. And so his determination to make something which was not cliched in the way it did that, didn't just where, you know, the Nazi characters that we met didn't just feel like all the others we've seen on film before. Particularly, I think they the German people making the film felt like there was a certain way that Germans were represented in British and American films about this period that didn't feel true. And that's not about a positive gloss or anything. It's about actually about making something that felt true rather than hackneyed. Um, and, and, and like I say, a desire to make a film that could be watched by young Germans now, as well as young Brits, young Americans, young people from everywhere, and it would be meaningful to them. Not just something for people who love reading about the Second World War, um, but people who, you know, as you say, don't necessarily think of themselves as like deep history buffs, but could come to this and be taken into the the personal dynamics of Hugh and Paul and, and really, you know, make that feel alive. That was what he brought to it. And so everything was then defined by that. And I think Paul and Hugh really seized the film in those moments. And Chamberlain, who is, you know, I think probably when you read the book, Chamberlain feels like the central figure of the story. And I think in the film, one of the clear choices was that Hugh and Paul were going to have the story and that Chamberlain was going to be a a sort of secondary character to them, one thing, you know, you talked about how you were trying to not portray things the way they are so often portrayed, especially in, you know, Hollywood movies. I can't say I've ever seen a depiction of Hitler quite like the one in this movie. And that, you know, so much of it is driven by this very quiet intensity. I would just like to know when you're writing Hitler in a film, at this point, there's been so many versions. How do you avoid caricature, but get across kind of the character, you know, the individual that people know so yeah. well? It's really hard because even the great, even the great portrayals, like you know, Downfall or something, have now entered. You know, it's a meme. It's like you know, mm-hmm. like it's so familiar. 
Um, and I think, you know, you could, you know, like small children could do an impression of, of that man at those rallies. And it's like, how do you, but then I think what was, what was in the book, but the, the, the Hitler scenes are very, very brief in the book. And what we really wanted to, to explore, and it's not, and I've read lots, not just about what it's like to be in a room with Hitler, but what it's like to be in a room with Putin or you know a Trump or any kind of um, political figure who has charisma and energy, but but maybe also some sense of danger about them. Um, and I think the what we really felt and this again comes the conversation with christian and his sense as a german of what that portrayal should feel like was trying to be truthful and surprising and he's not somebody who shouted in in one-to-one meetings um not somebody who was always um bombastic or um threatening or kind of violent in a in a kind of in a blatant way but somebody who was charming and intense yes but also able to get people to do what he wanted obviously like enormously successfully um and one of the things that we really wanted to do with the film is um is kind of echo what goes on with Chamberlain and Hugh in Hitler and Paul and the sort of surprise for the younger men of the intimacy being offered by the older men. And I thought that there would be something genuinely actually more scary or more interesting than a shouting, um, sort of ranting, frothing Hitler to see a Hitler who was, actually asking for a conversation and was Mm. quiet and you know where his intelligence and his ability to read people and desire to manipulate people in a much more subtle way was evident now there's a kind of i should just say those are kind of like a moral complexity to this right because i think one has to be careful that one's not you know making him nice or charming or because i think it's really important to to be honest about the fact that this is somebody who's going to, you know, uh, kill 10 million, be responsible for the deaths of 10 million people over the, the years after this moment and has been already responsible for the deaths of many, many people. But these, these people are human beings and you have to understand them as human beings. And when they're turned into monsters, they're kind of, we, we're sort of saved from having to confront the reality that all of these all of these um, barbaric acts are committed by by human beings and that the humanizing it them and making that clear and putting them in the in the room in a real way is a really important job i think um both for the film and just sort of in terms of what what we're doing as storytellers but like in these moments making it hard for paul because there was something being offered which was like seductive, you know? Hitler talks to him, like actually asks him when he says to him, you know, you know the British, tell me what the British are thinking. Paul does know the British and no one's ever asked him that like to use that skill. Now, 
he he doesn't want to use it for the purposes that Hitler wants him to use it for. But the you know he's being drawn into a conversation with somebody who is intense, and you know, and I think the performance um, you know added to that sense of it being an unusual portrayal of the of the man. It's it's interesting because uh, I mean, we were talking about the portrayal of Hitler. Uh, yesterday we've recorded but you know you, uh, you take a, a shark for instance you know a shark is dangerous you haven't got to show him right. chomping on a person yeah, exactly. but you can just show him yeah. in the water and and you know there's a sense of danger and i think that this film plays with that in the sense of hitler because you you know what he's capable of we know history yeah. um i think i think that's another success now i was going to ask you about casting i know necessarily it might be something you're directly involved with i mean were you involved in that process or did you have actors in mind when you were creating them yeah, we talked a lot about, um, I mean, I didn't know, uh, with the exception of uh, Sandra, who plays Helen Winter, I didn't know any of the German actors, actually. I like saw their work later. But um, Christian had worked with Janis before and had, I think, from the very first moment he began to read the book, Christian knew that Janis would be Paul. Um, and then, like I say, Jeremy Irons, I think, had, talked to Robert Harris about Chamberlain before Robert had begun to write Munich. Like it was, um, and indeed there had been a previous attempt to make the book, to adapt the book for, I think, a limited TV series that Jeremy had been attached to like three years earlier that hadn't even got to script. Um, so that was very much, and I, I think when when the book was optioned by Netflix, they sort of knew that they would be trying to, to fulfill that, to, to have Jeremy play Chamberlain. Um, there was a list, um, a great list of people for uh, Hugh Legger, which, which George was always really high. And I had, because um, because of my relationship with Sam, I had known George a bit when he was making 1917. And I knew how, like, how instrumental his performance, but also like his um, just qualities as a person had been on getting that film made and how Sam had been, Sam Mendes had been able to build 1917 around George. Um, and indeed, like George was really just the most fantastic leading actor on on Munich and, you know, learned German really like fluently in sort of eight weeks in order to be able to to do the part. Um, and yeah, it was just a total, a total joy. So I, I although we didn't know specifically it would be him, that I, I kind of had a feeling for the kind of actor who would play who would play Hugh um, and yeah. And then other people kind of came in at different, at different times. Like With Jeremy Irons attached to playing Chamberlain for a long time, did he have any notes? Did he have any requests? Because he was obviously very invested in the material. Yeah, he was. And he, you know, he'd thought a lot about, about how to do it and what this person, who this man was. And, you know, particularly, I mean, to be honest, it was his, Sort of take was the same as robert's take so it wasn't he didn't have anything that pulled against the book he just wanted to lean into that intelligence that kind of sense of uh the strategist the quiet thinker um and he was jeremy was particularly committed to um the pivotal scene in the garden when chamberlain talks about the people who he lost in, in the first, in the great war and you know the the sense that his pacifism or his desire to avoid war rather is not something negative or passive or cowardly 
it's something really active and front foot and about um actually trying to to save lives um and that and it's personal it's really personal for him um so that was that was always kind of front and center and he jeremy made sure that that was front and center for everybody making the film um now you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about uh sort of scripting and also editing and that there being a, a much longer version at one point obviously having to chop that down in the process of doing so and and cam and i had some questions about uh sort of the female characters in the film yeah. i suppose leading us into the discussion of perhaps the edit was mm. there more for sort of the female leads of the film at, at some point i mean the answer is not not really like the i mean i I would say this. I'm quite proud that there is as much, like almost all of the material that is in the film is, is not in the book. It's new material. Um, the book is doing this very, you know, telling its story, but is not um, as concerned as as I was and as we all were making it that we wanted to to find a proper active role for those women and that, you know, characters like Helen, you know, like that. I mean, they're they're, they're pivotal to the plot, but they were pivotal in a kind of offstage way in the book. So we're trying to find as much space as we could. And I'm aware that, you know, it's still not enough. Um, I would I would love for there to be more. Um, there was a bit more Pamela and Hugh stuff, which I think balanced the movie out a bit more um, and really made clear that, you know, what, what her experience of being married to him was and why that was so challenging in a way that I think helped our understanding of him. Um, but that that sort of had to come out by necessity when you when you're focusing it. But um but no, it, it's we I tried really hard to hold on to as much as, as I could. Um, yeah. and you know, those two, you know, particularly the relationship between Helen and Paul, I think is really is really pivotal it, it, it's a tough line to walk as well because it, it the film has to remain somewhat i imagine true to the realities of, of the world at that point and it was a very much a, a male-led world uh in, yeah. especially in the, in the politics side of things so it, it, it's definitely a tough thing to sort of get right however you come at it um but then you mentioned earlier that obviously there was a much longer version at one point i mean is there anything that was shot that you wish was still in the final product or something maybe perhaps it was fallen out of the drafts of the script that you were really proud of it just didn't get shot in the end there was a scene what we talked about a lot was the fact that it was a shame that even though they were in a room together for a portion of the film that there was no direct hitler chamberlain interaction and i wrote a scene that was just the completely invented scene towards the end of the conference when um just before chamberlain left to go back to his hotel he and hitler had actually quite a long like kind of three-page conversation about their respective personal histories being through a translator which was kind of good and made it awkward um about you know what they had both done in the first world war and hitler sort of insinuating that chamberlain was a, a coward for not having been an actual active participant in the war and Chamberlain sort of hardening into his resolve to not allow Hitler to get away with what he was trying to get away with in that moment. And I really loved that. And I loved Hugh sort of overhearing that conversation. Um, and in the end, it was just at a, at a point in the film where, like I say, the balance of like 
thriller versus character-based drama was really mm. vexed because the you know the kind of the MacGuffin of the the document had just been like the hair had been released into the film and you'd had Paul and Hugh having their their sort of secret rendezvous um having you know walked through the streets of Munich together so there was a pacing issue it just held up the film at a critical moment but it was I really was proud of it and you know because it was again like a hard thing to write like writing those two significant historical figures having a a sort of personal conversation was a challenge and an interesting one um so yeah maybe that would be in the in the screenwriter's cut if it existed now a lot of debate surrounding the movie that i've read online is about the nature of the relationship between hugh and paul and that many people read a lot of intimacy or possibly something romantic there. Was that intentional? You know, were you looking at making this a little ambiguous when you were writing it for people to kind of take what they wanted? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, they they shared a closeness at university that I think like people who've been through through those university friendships might, might recognize and i think the line between the romantic relationships and the non-romantic friendships and those moments are all quite blurry and i think both of them had found something in each other that they hadn't found in other relationships either you know sexual romantic relationships or not and that they missed each other in a really real sense and were kind of needed each other in a sense so i think all of that was inherent in the book and all of it is manifest in the um in the film and in the performances and you know Yanis and George were incredibly close through the making of the film and you know were were great friends and really wanted that friendship to be active and um I mean I don't think I wasn't trying to suggest that Paul and Hugh were lovers I don't think that they were in my vision but like that's that it's clear that those that I wanted to write about that point in your life where you form, you know, I mean, I didn't, didn't go to university in the early 1930s and live through anything like these kind of periods, but still the friendships that I made in my like late teens and early 20s, I think of as very um, defining and like fixed things that are, you know, you know, you're going to be friends with those people for a very long time. Um, and there's a vividness about experiences in that moment. And part of the point of the film was the contrast between how you feel 10 years later and the kind of disappointment as life has rolled out in the way it has, particularly for Hugh, versus that kind of the potential and the energy and excitement of that. We're on the verge of just starting something and who knows what we're going to do and what we might do together. And that you know, you get really forged, your friendships forged in that kind of crucible. And that's what I wanted to write about, really. Um, and what I think is that those bits are, are about. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware that people are interested in that element of the film. Well, th- there's something to be said about writing a, a platonic relationship between men. Um, and it, it's something that perhaps is a, a lost art at times, because it just seems that we're all just buddies with each other and nothing goes deeper. Uh, in right. a lot of sort of storytelling, which I, I think is a shame because you can have really strong relationships between men that is not romantic. It is just yeah. a, a platonic sort of thing. And and I think another success is is these, the connection between these two characters, which weirdly spend a lot of time apart in the film. And yet you, you long for them to be together. 
Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that, and that is the great, that was the great kind of stru narrative structural challenge is what do you do about the fact that these, you know, you've got essentially two trains running in parallel in story terms for the first two thirds of the, of the you know, narrative. And in the book, that's kind of fine because you just move back and forward. But we're used to when that's quite hard a dynamic of story to make work on film, I think. And mm working out how to intercut and move between the two places and allow things like the radio broadcast to be happening simultaneously for women using the flashback to keep that sense of them as a as a you know as a connected force together so that when you get to the point where Hugh hears Paul's name again or they see each other in the in the conference that you really feel the weight of that because the story's been driving you towards those points of connection that's mm. quite hard, and yeah, that was something we were looking for. I think as as we're wrapping up our chat on, on Munich before we sort of finish off, um, just looking back on the film now, what's what's sort of your favourite moment that you created? I mean, there's there's lots of it that I'm really proud of. I love the um, I love the section. It's not it's actually it's nothing to do with me. It was Christian and his and his cinematographer and his designer, but the the part of the film where Hugh, having just received the document, walks back to his hotel through Munich and he walks through the billowing um, uh, flags and the, do the dogs are there and the brown shirts are there. And, you know, I think they were thinking about how they could represent Germany in that moment without falling into a kind of cliche about what that looked like. And mm -hmm. I think that that whole section of the film has a kind of, poetry to it which is un quite unusual and quite unexpected at that moment and is really i i think is really successful um and then you know i love um i love the scene between the two guys it's sort of the the climax of the film in the character sense when they after they've been in the hospital at night and they're standing outside and they're talking about you know what they're going to do next and then the, the sort of uh, it's twin scene in in the car the next scene where they you know, they sort of say goodbye to each other. Like those are the scenes where I feel like we really have to try and find a way of writing what we wanted the film to be about without it feeling, you know, too on the nose. But that's, um, I think, and they're both, you know, the performances are fantastic. George is just wonderful in those bits of the film. So I'm very, uh, yeah, I'm very proud of those. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, the Thunderball commentary is live and we are tackling da dun da dun da dun the Pink Panther from 1963. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx.
Um, well, I think before we we wrap up, I did just want to touch on obviously working with Sam Mendes, Bond being quite an important set of films to, yeah. this, to, to the spy world. Um, is there anything you sort of picked up from working with him that you'll you'll use in your own sort of uh, film career? Oh wow! I mean, you know, like we've done now. You know, we've been working together for so long on this on this play, and seen that. I mean, there's a kind of what was really interesting, I thought, about the work that Sam did on Bond and particularly on Skyfall with John Logan was how you push through the expected and the cliche of it to find something which is new and original and but also satisfies that need that we have, right, to, mm-hmm. to you know, when I watch it, I want to feel like I felt when I was eight watching you know, Roger Moore skiing off with the Union Jack mm-hmm. uh, parachute. And that, so that is, you know, and I think doing a Bond film is probably the hardest possible version of that, how you have the new whilst maintaining what somebody wants, you know, and you can see it in the discussion about how to cast the the role. Like, how do you give people what they want, what they, you know, what the feeling that you want, whilst also evolving the franchise and moving the story forward and finding the unexpected um and you know sam's thinking about that and that applies to sort of everything it's just very acutely and obviously there in something like bond but you know it's the same as the conversation we're having about hitler or the or about representations of nazis on film or you know like how do you how do you do the thing i i think that story story works in our brains in a really like primal sense and how do you trigger those electrons in our brain that make us feel a certain way when we hear a classic story and that you know the the thing about there only being seven narratives you know that everything is is kind of in the end comes down to some really essential myths as human beings how do you deliver that and at the same time surprise and make something new and that's the great challenge of of making anything i think but that's where sam and his collaborators particularly on skyfall which i think is just the most brilliant movie like push into that so you get what you want but you also get something you didn't know you wanted maybe I think it's a fair answer. And I would agree in terms when it comes to Skyfall, which I think brings us beautifully over to the final set of questions that we have for every guest. We from you know John Glenn, Nicholas Meyer, you're all going to get these questions. So you're in the hot seat now. We need to check your spy credentials. Oh God, okay. What is your favorite spy film? I I haven't seen it for a long time, so I'm slightly nervous about saying this because I'm not going to be able to talk about it in huge detail but i remember the feeling i had watching the conversation and feeling like and i watched it i didn't know anything about it and i watched it and i felt utterly i mean i think his Hackman's performance in that film is unbelievable and just the sense of yeah i just loved everything about it i thought that it had a kind of an atmosphere and a claustrophobia and a tightness of story of all of its own that i um, I should watch it again because I, I really, really love that film. And then, like, obvious ones. I think the Richard Burton in the 65 Spy Who Came In From The Cold is really is really great. And, uh, you know, Le Carre, the master of all of that. 
I think I think you're the first person to answer the conversation. So I think you, you, you really. Uh, oh, that's yeah, good. I think, okay, I think so. Oh, I think so. Yeah, Which is we, a surprise, kind of actually. Yeah, I, you hear the the spy came from the cold quite a bit. Um, yeah. North by Northwest comes up a couple of times, things like that. Maybe the but... conversation doesn't count as a spy movie. Maybe that's why. Oh, oh it, it does. Counts. It counts. So we, we give it the thumbs up, so it counts. Therefore, right. apparently okay. we're the thumbs we're the guardians up. of this realm. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You say what you say goes. That's good. Okay, it's terrifying. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want this responsibility. No. Um. Well, speaking of your connections with Bond and your, and your love of Bond growing up, what's your favorite Bond film? Oh wow, that's a good question. I really lo- I love. This is not. This is also going to be an unusual answer. I love. I grew up with with uh, Roger Moore, so like that is has a special place, but I think Timothy Dalton is a fantastic, underrated Bond. And mm-hmm. I love um, I love Living Daylights. I think that's a great movie. I just just see where you go with that if you go for License to Kill or Living Daylights. I, I actually yeah. um, prefer Living Daylights out of the two, so I think that's a good choice. Oh, thanks. Um, I'm still waiting for him to come back and do another, like a third <laughs> Bond, an older Bond. and uh, Older yeah. Bond? Why not? My God, it's yeah. great. They tried it in Never Says Ever Again. They didn't really do it very well, but no, I feel like that wasn't that was done for you know maybe not the best reasons, but I feel like that would be if they announced that Timothy Dalton is the new Bond, that would be a surprise announcement. I think. Well, you've got like Russell T Davies coming back to Doctor Who. You can great, do exactly. You like. There's loads of yeah, loads of precedent. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, last question before we let you go. Yeah. Your love of Bond is well cemented. Your spy credentials have been passed. It's all good. We're rubber stamping you. What do you do with the Bond franchise moving forward? Oh god, okay. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna answer that. I'm not gonna answer that. They'll do it. The thing is, the only person, the only person who knows what they should do and will do the right thing is Barbara Broccoli, who I just trust completely. So, what you just got to wait and see what Barbara does. And like, it's a, you know, it's a family business. Like she knows, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it though you just got to wait. You wait and see. I wouldn't dare to. Um, to imagine anything else i almost want to twist your arm but i i, I know we got i've got a lot of time left so um before That's... we let you go ben is there anything you're working on at the moment you can sort of spoil for us or let us know you've got things coming up no there's a there's a few things around um there's not there's not actually very much that i can talk about but i'm i'm back in the second world war actually for another project for a, a tv project and all of my experience on munich and everything that we've been talking about has has been really useful for that um because i feel like you know as we discussed looking back at these moments in history is the way of really understanding where we are today and talking about it in a kind of indirect but but helpful way so um no i'm i'm back in 1939 at the moment and it's uh it's good okay well, we'll be keeping an eye out for that but yeah, again, well, yeah. ben i want to thank you for your time today it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you thanks scott thank you both it's fantastic fantastic there you go folks that was our chat with mr ben power and you know very busy man you know his his layman trilogy is getting you know tons of accolades right now he did that with sam mendez of course and um very thrilled that he could take the time to talk to us yeah, this was a really fascinating interview. I love when we have writers on, especially writers who are so eloquent in explaining not just the process of how you know their words wound up on the screen, but also just the the nature of storytelling. Like this was someone who'd clearly thought through every element and just had so much insight about 
every aspect of this movie we asked him about. Yeah, it's one of those interviews where I wish I had like another hour just to really dig into the film and dig into sort of the background because he comes from a playwriting sort of stage background and and how that influenced the uh, process of making this script. It, you can tell he thought a lot about it and 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 I thought his insights it actually reminded me a lot of the sort of Dan Mindell interview in a way. Yeah. Or it's kind of like a film school in an interview because if you're listening to this and you're thinking about being a screenwriter, there's some interesting tidbits in there about you know, the process of creating and adapting characters, what you should and what you shouldn't put across. And I mean, I, yeah, we when we spoke about this film earlier this week, we had some questions we wanted to take and, and we took them to Ben and, and he gave us as, as good an answer as you could get, really. Yeah, and I really appreciated that, that he was so open with just discussing some of the things, you know, we took issue with, you know, we talked about, you know, the, the female characters in the movie, and he had some really interesting insights into why they wound up the way they did on the screen. And that's something you hope, you know, that every screenwriter, when they're talking about their work can say, well, here's what we did. And here's why we wound up with this. All I would like to hear is like, why, as opposed to, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's nice that there's some thought put into it. And, and, and as Ben said, he actually added more time with the female characters and gave them more to do. You know, you look back at apparently the book, which neither of us have read, uh, uh, they must not feature at all or, or barely. So I suppose credit where credit is due for giving them more time. Obviously, we would have liked more for some of the characters, but, you know, you, you take what you can get. And as I said to Ben in the interview, you also have to contextualize the story and where it's set. The, the, the major players in the story would mostly be men. And there's no way to... I mean, this was not trying to be a retelling of history. This is trying to be somewhat uh, true to form. And so he had to stick inside those boundaries. Definitely. And I was just really interested to hear him talk about the scenes of tension throughout the movie that are so effective, and especially the ones dealing with Hitler, which in our review of the movie, I said like I was really just kind of bowled over by the depiction we got in the movie and how effective it was and how it conveyed that menace. And just hearing him break down the process of bringing a very difficult character to the screen. Like Hitler is someone who is obviously one of the great monsters of history. So you've got to walk that fine line between making him charismatic on the screen, but also not making him a caricature. And I was just genuinely fascinated listening to him kind of explain the process of how that, you know, that depiction wound up on the screen. And, and as you say, it's, it's a really tough job to try and, you're not going to try and reinvent the wheel, but you can portray it in, in a different, interesting way without betraying what we know to be true. And, you know, I, I, much as I made jokes in the episode about the guy looking like three small children in a in a Nazi <laughs> uniform, which I still stick to, I think it's entirely correct. Yeah. Um, I think that is more like he looks diminutive. Like he looks like this sort of Napoleon small man energy trying to act out and this sort of cult of personality trying to manipulate people around him. And it's interesting that all this stuff is sort of layered in this film without being too sort of loud about it. Like it, it just, it's just there. And if you are looking for that depth that exists within this film, but if you're also just looking for a film about a story in World War II, you can just sort of look at it that way too. Yeah, like the movie is not, um, you know, you wouldn't call it pretentious storytelling, it's not kind of that beating you upside the head with its messages. It's, you know, kind of this somewhat immersive 
experience of just going on a mission at a very tense time pre-World War II and kind of soaking up in the, you know, just the atmosphere and the characters at this central drama. It's not a um, overbearing film at all. And I think that's one of its, you know, real successes. And I, I quite enjoyed hearing about sort of Jeremy Irons' connection to Chamberlain and wanting to do that character before even the Robert Harris book had been created. He clearly has a passion for that that person in, in British history. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I came down on sort of the side of historians and in in the review, and I I mean, I wasn't there. I can't speak to Neville Chamberlain's thought processes in, in what he did. Uh, I just go, I suppose, with the consensus. But I suppose as an actor, it's it's a fascinating role because it's someone who has been portrayed in one way throughout history, but you can perceive his actions in a different way. And that's, I guess, probably one of the things that you know, made him so interested in the character. And I, I wonder if there's some sort of through line between his interest in the character, you know, consulting with Robert Harris and then being in this film. Obviously, he was wanting to be in the TV adaptation that was potentially going to happen before this. I don't. I mean, I imagine there's probably other, op- you know, other examples of actors being attached to characters that they're really passionate about in their careers and eventually getting to play them. I, I could list them off the top of my head, but I just find that interesting as a choice for an actor who, you know, his his name is cemented in film history. He doesn't need to do the biopic on Neville Chamberlain. No, and I think you know, as you said, like historians are <laughs> pretty split, pretty polarized on you know, this story, not just talking about the movie, but the book as well, in mm-hmm. terms of reframing um, Chamberlain. But in some ways, that's what makes this movie stand out from the rest of the pack, is that it offers that insight that's never really been delved into. So I guess it's sort of up for debate, but, you know, it's not a bad thing if a movie inspires debate. No, I'd, I'd rather we be talking about this than, well, my favorite spy. True, my favorite spy. And it's funny when you were talking about actors being attached to roles for a long time. You know what the one that popped to my mind? It shows how classy and refined I am in my tastes. I I, I daren't ask, but go on. Channing Tatum for Gambit. <laughs> oh. Is that something he's been championing? He was attached to play Gambit for a long time in an X-Men film when it was still owned by Fox. Really? Yeah. That's fat. I, 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 I suppose I could see it. Uh, I I don't know what his Bayou accent would be like. We'll never know. I believe that's where he was born, though. Like I think he was actually born oh. in New Orleans, so that's why he was so passionate about the character. I, was, I totally get it. Then, if that's the case, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Weird side oh. journey we've gone on, but nonetheless, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mon Um Well, yeah, and I suppose like in just sort of like encapsulating our, our chat, I think it's it's clear to me. And we've spoken to a lot of screenwriters on the show, and I, I'm not going to name names of who is who, but there's some people that have, we've spoken to or people we've discussed on the show that it's really just been a job in between jobs. Sure. Writing this script for this film. I, I feel like Ben took this assignment seriously and wanted to add as much as he could, uh, and I think he did a bang-up job of adapting the book. I, I can't speak to the book as a, as a whole, and I can't say it's necessarily a good adapt- adaptation of the book, but I think the script that he delivered kept me captivated for two hours, uh, and I think the sense of tension is is rife throughout. I think it's a success in that sense. So credit to the man. He clearly had a, a lot of passion 
about it, and that shows. Yeah, for sure, and that's what you hope for. I mean, not every project is going to be every you know person attached to it's dream project, mm. but clearly this was a project that meant something to him, and that came across in the interview, and I do think it comes across in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And just speaking of sort of Ben and his spy credentials, obviously he's like working with San Mendez is fascinating. I think, again, I could have spoken to him another half an hour or so about that. I mean, maybe I'll have to get Sam's email off of Ben and see if we can get that spy master interview set up. That would be a, hmm. that would be a hoot. Um, but, you know, what a, what a man to work under when it comes to films and also the connection to 1917 as well uh, for, for the, the Hugh Leggett character. Uh, George McKay, and uh, I just think that's like a fascinating way of learning film, because you know the work that Sam did, especially with Skyfall, and trying to not only push the envelope but make it feel nostalgic, because that Skyfall was a very pivotal film for Bond. It's probably the most pivotal since Goldeneye, I think I would argue. Yeah, I, I, Casino Royale was pretty important in reinventing the brand, so I would say that's a pretty pivotal one. I, I think there is an argument for that. I, I think. I think Skyfall penetrated more like markets than Casino Royale did. That's accurate, yeah. Yeah, and, and so I think that you know Sam was able to to stick that landing, although we haven't reviewed it yet, so I won't go into my thoughts on the film of Skyfall. But just to be around Sam and to talk about Bond with Sam whilst he was in the process of making Spectre, um, that must have been absolutely fascinating. And I would imagine Sam Mendes was probably aging before him because Spectre's uh, process of development was very rough. Yeah, I, I don't know how much fun he had on Spectre as opposed to Skyfall. Um, but if, if, if what Ben is saying is any gauge, then he was still passionate about trying to make it a, a, a good film. For sure. That's all I suppose you can say from that. And of course, Ben's favorite spy film was The Conversation, which is not something we've heard before in terms of being someone's favorite. There's been a lot of Casino Royales. But I appreciate a different answer to the question. You know, we've, we've not tackled this film or the spiritual successor, Enemy of the State, on this show. But we are looking forward to tackling them at some point. Yeah, the conversation is, I mean, something of a masterpiece, at least in my eyes. So I was excited to hear that one mentioned. But I was really excited to hear him say that his favorite Bond movie was The Living Daylights. I don't think we've ever had any, anyone say The Living Daylights before. No, actually, I suppose you're right. Um, it's interesting because a lot of a lot of people we've spoken to, and like yourself, really as well, just from years of speaking to you, like I, you grew up in that Roger Moore era, yeah. But then, really, it didn't sort of reignite for you until sort of Goldeneye came along. That's right, yeah. So Brosnan was sort of the next big one for you because Dalton sort of suffered from the the, the 15 rating of License to Kill and not the best reception to Living Daylights. So um, it's fascinating that actually as a kid, he went straight for Living Daylights and really sort of stuck to that film. Yeah. And for me, I think my relationship with Dalton was different because I watched him, you know, The Living Daylights and License to Kill in the midst of watching Roger Moore films. It wasn't like I watched all the Roger Moores and then went to Dalton. It's like I was watching Roger Moore and having such a fun time. And then I bounced to the serious guy and I'm like, give me back the fun guy and then watch some more Roger Moore and then another Dalton then bounce back and forth. So I, I wonder how I would have received those movies had I watched all the Roger Moores and then the two Daltons in a row. There's no crocodile submarines in these films. Why am I watching them? 
Exactly. I say that to every single movie, though. <laughs> that's it, yeah, that, that's that's your criteria for the knock list, basically. Pretty much, yeah. It's all yeah. crocodile subs all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, again, I want to thank Ben for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, nothing but generous with his time. And it's been a blast talking about Munich, The Edge of War. Yeah, for sure. This was a lot of fun, and um, this was our first Netflix film, and hopefully down the road we can find another Netflix film that's interesting to talk about and perhaps has a good Spymaster interview potential attached to it. Absolutely. So uh, I think, Cam, the question is now, what are we talking about next week? Well, Scott, we are belatedly wrapping up the Bourne franchise. We covered those movies a little while back, but we never did a proper roundtable the way we did the Brosnan era of Bond films. So we are going to do that finally. We are going to tackle the entire Bourne series and talk about every aspect, the best, the worst, everything. Yes, the the Brosnan roundtable was kind of like a trial episode in a way for us to see what you guys thought about it and it, it's been one of our most popular episodes uh, altogether so I, I get the sense that some people like listening to that sort of style the tuesday after this episode comes out marks the 20th anniversary of the release of the born identity so we thought that was a great sort of convergence of just born and sort of our opportunity to go back and do a roundtable for a different you know not james bond but you know a different sort of franchise and i think we will look to do this for other franchises down the road that once we've maybe done all of the films maybe give it a year or so we'll come and sort of reapprise it as a whole with some experts and we've got a, a great round table of experts uh, i won't spoil who we've got you'll find that out on social media or when you listen you know, next week and we also have a lot of returning guests from our born reviews are coming back to give their thoughts on the born legacy if you will as a whole um and yes it's going to be a really fascinating episode uh, slightly longer than our usual and we will also have a spy master interview for you next week that i won't spoil but let's just say you might need a pen (laughs) i like it uh there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to tune in next week and listen to our born round table uh if you liked what you heard this week on the spy master interview please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts it helps us when it comes to being searched on these sort of podcast aggregator websites or just tell your friends because that also helps too and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week listeners you can only play the game with the hands that you've been dealt Hello, my name is Chris Carm, a filmmaker and podcaster. Join me as I take a look at the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics and organised crime on my podcast, Secrets and Spies, available on all podcast apps. This is Mana from Spy Heaven. 